Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. Before we get to the episode, we want to take a moment to address the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion in many parts of the United States. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all people in the United States. This decision could also lead to the loss of other rights. To learn more about what you can do to help, go to podvoices.help. That's P-O-D-V-O-I-C-E-S dot help. We encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction, science, futurism, and the never-ending search for the least bad multiverse. I'm Charlie Jean Anders. I'm the author of Victories Greater Than Death and the sequel that just came out, Dreams Bigger Than Heartbreak. And I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist and science fiction writer, and I'm the author of Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. So for today's episode, we're going to do something extra special. We're going to answer some questions from you, our beloved listeners. We have yeah. A, yeah. We have a whole mailbag <laughs> bursting with incredibly insightful and thought-provoking questions, which have provoked some thoughts that we're going to share with you. <laughs> These questions range from the complexities of time traveling and colonizing alien worlds to the reasons for the resurgence of Dungeons and Dragons. We love our listeners. and Yeah, we love you. In our audio extra next week... On Patreon, we'll be answering a reader question that's a little bit more personal in nature. Speaking of which, all of the questions that we're answering today came from our Patreon supporters, which reminds me, this podcast is entirely independent, and it is funded by you, our listeners via Patreon. You are the wind beneath our giant leathery bat wings. If you become a patron, you are helping to keep this podcast going and you get rewards with every episode. You get an audio extra in the off week. Plus, you get access to our Discord channel where we just hang out all the time. So think about that. That could be yours for just a few bucks a month. Anything you give us goes right back into making our opinions even more correct and possibly yours as well. So find us at patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. With that out of the way, let's open our mailbag. All right. So first half of the episode is going to be some slightly more serious questions. So Mike asks, what are some of the pitfalls to writing about near future scenarios that involve decreased bodily autonomy when the present is telling so many dystopian visions to, quote, hold my beer? And I think this is really about, like, for example, the fact that Black Mirror felt really scary and science fictional when it started airing, like, I don't even know, five, six years ago. I look at Black Mirror now and I'm like, yeah, that's a historical documentary. That's, that's That stuff has already happened and <laughs> we're already over yeah. it, you know? Like, ah, oh, yeah, we already got that. That's, that's just our reality now. And like, a lot of it does have to do with various kinds of decreased bodily autonomy or, you know, and it does feel like the present is really kind of challenging us. And so what do you think, Annalie? Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of people using that exact phrase about how the present is telling dystopia to hold its beer, which makes me have like a delightful image in my head of two abstract concepts sharing beer. <laughs> I mean. um, so let's tackle the part of this question where Mike is asking about the pitfalls. So he's like, What's a possible problem of writing about near future scenarios when everything already seems like it has become one of these dark near future scenarios? And there's two ways to look at that. One is, as a writer, 
Is there a pitfall in trying to describe something that's in the process of happening because you risk cringe and you risk becoming outdated really quickly so Mm -hmm. that your story no longer feels relevant? So there's that question. And then the other question is, is there some kind of social harm that's caused by writing stories that seem to confirm the idea that there's some kind of inevitability to the dystopia we're experiencing? Right. I mean, it's an intrinsic problem to writing near future stories that you are going to, the future will catch up to you. Like it arrives more quickly than you think it will, especially these days. And it's happened to me, it's happened to a lot of sci-fi authors. But at the same time, I think that we have to talk about the things that we're experiencing right now and the things that are kind of in the process of getting more nightmarish in some cases, because that's the only way that we can formulate solutions and that we can kind of make sense of it and deal with it. So it's like, it's work that has to be done, but it's also work that's incredibly challenging right now. And I feel like part of what's good about speculative fiction is that you can get a little bit weirder and more fanciful and fantastical and more kind of Philip K. Dickian or Octavia Butlerian and kind of put it in a little bit more of a, uh, make it a little bit weirder. And that way you kind of sidestep some of the kind of notion of whether you're being predictive. Yeah, I remember um, Malka Older uh, talking about when she was working on Infomocracy, um, and we had her on the podcast uh, talking about her trilogy um, that starts with Infomocracy. And one of the things she said was that uh, it is kind of a near future vision of um, what happens to democracy when you try to run a global election. And one of her characters flies around in this vehicle that it's, I forget what she calls it, but I think she just calls it like a flyer or like it, she gives it some other name that's really generic. And she said she did it deliberately because it's kind of like a personalized autonomous helicopter of some kind. I mean, the person who uses it lives in it and flies around in it. And it's it's kind of a flying car, but it's kind of something else. And Malka was saying that she wanted to future-proof the story in a sense by giving it this really generic name instead of trying to explain like, this is this piece of technology that grew out of this other piece of technology. Instead, it's just like, in the same way that we call cars cars, we don't call them, you know, horseless carriages or automobiles or, you know, we, we give them this nickname. So she gives the technology this nickname. And that, in a way, makes it less likely that we're going to feel cringe when we see it and be like, oh, this was a thing that never happened or this was a thing that already got invented because it's just this kind of fill-in-the-blank flying vehicle thing. So I think that's one kind of way you can get around the issue of talking about new tech, at least, is to kind of think about how people always end up nicknaming things in their environment, right? something really generic. So you don't have to worry about like, is it the, you know, autonomous, um, you know, self-driving flying vehicle? It's like, nope, it's a car, (laughs) you know. But yeah, I guess my final thought is that we need to kind of let go of this idea of predicting, which is always a kind of, you know, an anchor that's hung around the neck of science fiction writers in particular. Yeah. I'd just be like, we're telling stories about what's happening now. We're kind of thinking about how things could get worse or weirder or whatever, but we're also kind of just coming up with metaphors or ways of thinking about the present that kind of put it at one remove so that we could actually look at it. And once you think about it that way, then you're, you have less trouble writing about kind of dystopia that's like near future that grows out of the present, because I think you can just kind of, you have a little bit more license, I think. Yeah, I think my one, my one pitfall that I would identify is I think the only real problem is when you write a near future dystopia and make it seem as if it is inevitable and there's no way out of it, because that is incredibly unrealistic. There's always another path. Uh, There's always a way to um, resist. And the idea that we're just trapped in a never-ending dystopia, it's both harmful, I think, psychologically for people reading and also just it it doesn't ring true. Yeah, I mean, that is really a good point. I feel like we have to allow for, you know, 
the idea that there's choice and that we have a we have the power to shape our future. I think otherwise yeah. it's it's just not even worth it. So we have another question from David who asks you know, as writers, you sometimes imagine the thought processes of non-humans, uh, and David mentions Martha Wells and how she shows us the thoughts of non-humans in the Roxura series and also in Murderbot. And, you know, when you're writing these stories in English, your own native language, in the case of both of us and some other folks we know, what kind of constraints does that put on your presentation of an alien mind? And would it be necessarily different if we wrote about that same mind's thoughts presented in Mandarin or Farsi? And, you know, to start off, I want to kind of caution that I, I feel a little uncomfortable with conflating like other cultures on earth, like non-Western cultures or non-European you know, cultures, equating those with like something that's actually alien, that's like extraterrestrials or supernatural beings or robots or, or whatever. And I, I don't think that's what David intends here, but I think that what he's asking is, if we're writing in our own native language, are we going to be able to really capture the the consciousness of of somebody or some you know some being that is very different from our own, or is the fact that we kind of are used to using this language in a particular way is that going to constrain our ability to kind of capture that that other consciousness? And I feel like Annalie, obviously, you could speak to yourself, but I think both of us have experimented with finding ways to write the thoughts of non-human or you know non-standard human beings in English, but making it feel like it's distinct in some way. Like, I feel like you do that in Autonomous, for example. Yeah, I think you're right that this question is intended to really ask, does language shape the way we represent alien consciousness? And not that it was a, that the reader was not kind of claiming that alien consciousness equals non-Western consciousness. I was just going to say that I had a really interesting experience when I was working with the the Spanish translator for Autonomous, Alexander Garcia, who emailed me, and not all translators do this, like sometimes translators will just like go off and do their thing and they won't ever ask you questions, but he was really interested in the way that Paladin, the robot character, switches pronouns halfway through the book. So Paladin starts out as a he, him, and winds up she, her. And in the middle of the book, I, as the narrator, start referring to Paladin as her. And of course, in Spanish, every noun is gendered, um, as in most Romance languages. And so his question was, as he is writing the second half of, as he is translating the second half of the book, of course, he changed Paladin's pronouns, but there was this problem because the word for robot is, it can either be labot or elbot, because um, I call the robots bots. So he was asking, you know, there's a final scene in the book, this is not a spoiler, where a character who has never met Paladin before is describing Paladin, and they describe Paladin as the bot. And um, one of the themes in the book is that people who meet Paladin, and Paladin is a big, burly, huge combat robot, they always assume that Paladin is a he because they just assume that any big, burly, strong thing would be male. And uh, and so there's this disconnect when Paladin starts to be identified with she, her pronouns. So what Alex wanted to know was in this scene when this character meets Paladin who doesn't know Paladin's pronouns is describing Paladin, should they say L-bot, like a male bot, or La-bot, because they don't know Paladin's pronouns. And this is a question that I didn't have to deal with at all in the English version because they just said the bot. And so we don't know what this character is thinking about Paladin's gender. And so Alex, the translator, said, what I'd like to do is when we're in the perspective of this person who doesn't know Paladin, I'd like to have her identify Paladin as L-bot, the male bot, and then when a different character who knows Paladin's gender in the same scene refers to them, they say Labot. And I was like, yes, that is amazing because having that extra gendered marker actually adds a, another layer to that scene where we see how different people project different gender identities onto Paladin. Um, and depending on your perspective, Paladin appears to be male or female. 
And that's just something I could have never done in English. And so I think that's a great example of how language does change your ability to describe a different kind of consciousness. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, when I was younger, I learned a lot of languages, which are now mostly kind of rusty, unfortunately, because that's what happens when you don't practice them enough. But, you know, I was learning when I was younger, I learned some Latin, also French, uh, Chinese, like Mandarin, uh, Japanese. I learned a little bit of Mongolian. And now I've more recently, I've been learning Portuguese. And I feel like that has really influenced how I think about like writing vastly different cultures. Not that I'm equating the, the real life cultures on earth with alien cultures, which is the thing that I would, I need to be very careful about stressing that because Star Trek and Star Wars and other things have done that in real life where they're like, these are the, these aliens are Jews. These aliens are Chinese people or whatever. That's, <laughs> yes. that's really not okay. Don't do that. No space Jews. But at the same time, I feel like that experience of kind of getting to kind of think, like construct sentences in a different way and think about like the way you express yourself in a different way is actually helpful just for kind of knocking yourself out of this one kind of rote way of, of processing things. And so, you know, I have tried to write non-human consciousnesses in English. And sometimes the way I will do it is by just having them communicate in a way that's non-verbal, like in the city in the middle of the night, or having them communicate in a way that's kind of very orthogonal. But in the third, this is a minor spoiler, in the third book of my young adult series, we actually spent a lot of time kind of getting to understand more about an alien language. And I've been working with a linguist from MIT on this because I want this to be a language that really doesn't have nouns and verbs as we understand them. And so it's like on Earth, we have some languages that are like subject, object, verb. We have some languages that are subject, verb, object. There are a bunch of different ways to construct a sentence, depending on which language you're speaking and different word orders that make sense. So what if this language is one where it's like a bunch of nouns and random qualifiers, and then you get the verb at the end, and you have to kind of figure out how it all fits together, because it's not, they don't think about action the way that we think about action. Um, and that was actually a really fun thought experiment uh, that I'm excited to kind of dive back into. So I feel like language is important. I feel like there's a reason why so many people have been creating these like conlangs or constructed languages for other cultures that are not, you know, earth cultures, like in the expanse, like when they made Klingon into a language, which somebody I talked to recently was learning Klingon and Duolingo. And apparently it is a very hard language to learn. It is very, the sentence structure is not, it's actually weirdly passive. Like you'd think Klingon would be very active, but actually no. Wow. Mark Okrand, who created Klingon, we, we can blame him. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's very interesting. So I do think it's interesting to think about languages. I also think it's good to do whatever you can to kind of jar yourself out of our normal thought patterns. And that can be language. It can also be a bunch of other things. Thinking about how having different senses might impact your consciousness or thinking about like how evolving in a very different environment or, you know, one book about artificial intelligence that I love is Virtual Girl by Amy Thompson, because there she starts out with AIs that are just confined to a machine and their only sensory input is maybe like a, a webcam or like a, you know, a camera and a speaker, or like an audio processing thing. And then this AI becomes embodied and has suddenly has this very different relationship to the world with more sensory input and more kind of ways to interact. And I think I think about that a lot because I think that's such a, a good way to think about like, how do your senses and your ability to touch the world, how do they shape your consciousness? Yeah, there's a great little bit of world building in Suzette Hayden Elgin's series that starts with Native Tongue, which is all about humans who translate alien languages for other humans. And one of the things that the translators always do is they never use sensory words that are connected to specific organs. So instead of saying, oh, I'm feeling good, do you see why? They would say, do you perceive why? And they replace all the words for like see and hear with perceive. And it's just so effective. Like that one little thing reminds you that they're never dealing with people who have the same sensory organs. So they simply speak in these generalities about perception. That is so interesting. I love that. Okay, so we have a question from Marsh who asks, 
What's the fresh, new, non-Earth habitation that corporeal beings will be scrambling to live on in a thousand, five thousand, and then ten thousand years? And you know, <laughs> I mean, I hope that humans in some way or post-humans of some form will be around in ten thousand years to find out. I really hope so. Um, I don't know, Annalie. What's what's our non-Earth habitation? Yeah, I mean, so the time spans that we're given are a thousand, five thousand, and ten thousand. So I would say in a thousand, I really hope that we're just still able to live on Earth. And I would suspect that our non-Earth habitation is going to be pretty limited. But by ten thousand years, I think that. Well, as Ian M. Banks used to say, a planet is a terrible waste of matter. And it's just, you're only using part of it. You're just using the surface of the matter. Like, what are you doing? So I think that if we have the ability to convert planetary matter into giant space structures, that that's going to be the hot new thing, like living inside a giant hollow wheel. Perhaps literally living... hot, <laughs> depending. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Dyson spheres, where you're like living on the inside of a sphere that's uh, surrounding a sun. Um, I love halo worlds. Those mm-hmm. were like a great idea, great use of matter, mm-hmm. um, and all kinds of stuff we can't even imagine. So I think artificial structures, and maybe some of them will be made out of hollowed out asteroids, for example, or you just like grab a whole bunch of asteroids and smoosh them together and fill them with tunnels and like add all kinds of crap to the outside. I just, I love imagining um, future habitations that are built about as haphazardly as cities are built on earth. Because, you know, when we imagine like a halo world, usually it's like, it's a clean, beautiful halo surrounding a planet and it looks perfect. And it's not like there's weird junk hanging off the side and like somebody built like a favela that's like attached to the under part because they couldn't afford to buy a house on the inner part of the ring. And I think that's going to be how it is. I think we're going to have space structures that have been modified and changed and and it'll be much like a city on earth built up over hundreds of years. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to be a rebel and say that I think it's conceivable that a thousand years from now, I don't think it's going to happen any sooner, but I think a thousand years from now, our descendants could be colonizing Mars. I think that there might be Oh, sure. you know, some kind of terraforming project and I don't know if most humans will be living on Mars. I think it might just be an outpost. I think that we will it might take us a thousand years to figure out how to make a sustainable colony on Mars because of the the many challenges of that. But I think a thousand years from now, that's entirely possible. I think five thousand years from now, it's I'm just gonna be bold and say that five thousand years from now, it's possible that we've figured out some kind of rudimentary, engine or you know railgun kind of situation that's that's uh, don't don't send me hate mail about saying <laughs> railgun because i'm just blathering but i like the railgun type of situation like some kind like, of could be anything man <laughs> some kind of like some method of some propulsion kind of throwy like, thing, a throwy efficient thing. and like that basically we will figure it out some way to get people to like proxima centauri or some other nearby star systems you know maybe some of the other star systems that we've been studying that have like, you know, tightly locked planets around them. But basically that 5,000 years from now, we may have some means to like send people to neighboring star systems or nearby star systems that take like 20 or 30 years subjective time. And people just either go in suspended animation or just live on ships for 20 or 30 years and like then arrive and like they're never going to come home again, but they're going to like colonize or like settle on these other planets. And I think 10,000 years from now, it's possible that we will be, you know, I mean, I actually agree with Annalie that 10,000 years from now, we might be living on artificial habitats more than anything else because, you know, planets are kind of a problem. And I think that one thing that we're going to discover uh, firsthand is that exoplanets are always going to be really tough because there's never going to be an exoplanet that is suitable for human habitation without just a ton of work. And, you know, there's going to be like weird diseases and weird, you know, just slightly wrong levels of radiation. The gravity is not going to be quite right. It's going to just, there's going to be stuff that we have to grapple with on any exoplanets. Yeah, we'd either have to modify 
ourselves or modify the planet really dramatically in order for that to work out. Right. For sure. Yeah. I'm really fond of the idea of wormhole travel for, Mm. you know, kind of vaguing out how we're going to get to one of these other places. And I think it would be hilarious because we always think of the idea that like, first, we're going to colonize Mars, then we're going to colonize something close. But what if we find a wormhole and the wormhole takes us to like a galaxy that's on the other side of the universe? And so our first colonization efforts are like literally the farthest away you could possibly get from Earth because that's where the wormhole goes. So whoops. So I kind of like that idea. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I would love it if we found or figured out how to make a wormhole. Maybe we'll eventually, we'll be studying black holes and white holes, and we'll just figure out some way to create an artificial wormhole that is like stable and safe for transit. And we'll just create one and figure out where it leads and just start going there. And I could see that for sure. So our next question is from Alicia Gorenson, who asks, What do we find comfortable in our representations of fictional aliens? What do we like to see in the sorts of critters who we either run into in the stars or who seek us out? What strengths and flaws do we like to see represented? Okay, so I love the thing about comfortable. Mm -hmm. So what do you think are comfortable in our representations of aliens, which is different from like what is exciting or what is new or different or weird or alien? Like what's comfy when we talk about aliens. Yeah, I think that that's an interesting way of putting it because that is kind of a lot of science fiction is about, you know, encounters with aliens that are kind of either just non-challenging or just kind of like reassuring in some way or just like cozy. And like, I think that Mm -hmm. a lot of the time for human-centric people, which is pretty much all of us, I think, we're all (laughs) human-centric whether we want to be or not. Speak for yourself, human. Anyway, for human-centric people, We want aliens who make us feel good about being human, first of all. So that's why you see so many stories where like a human being shows up somewhere and everybody's just like, oh, humans are so great or whatever. Like, you know, I feel like there's a lot of science fiction where like the one human is just like the only person who like has ingenuity or who is like takes initiative or, you know, I feel like we're told over and over again in a lot of different sci-fi things that humans are just uniquely either clever or individualistic or, you know, just we're special in some way. I think also we want aliens to kind of reflect us back at ourselves, which is why so many science fiction things have aliens who are basically human beings with slight differences who represent some aspect of human nature or who represent, you know, some facet of ourselves. And I think that it's just very, it's comforting and reassuring to have aliens who kind of don't challenge our own ideas about ourselves too much. Yeah, wow. That is such a great answer. I think you're absolutely right. I was going to add to that, not very much, but just I think one of the comforting ways that we represent aliens is also as cute and as some somehow similar to cats or mm-hmm. dogs or yeah. other fluffy like. Fluffy creatures who are not human, but who already share our environments with us. And so that's why, for example, you know, Wookiees are a great alien because A, they don't actually talk, which is one of the things that I think people find very reassuring about cats, because you know, if they could talk, they would be talking shit about us. Um, <laughs> and also, Wookiees are, are cute. You know, they're fluffy. Yeah, they're supposed to be big and scary, but they're always just kind of, you know, they're just like big fluffy teddy bears. So I think that's something that we find very comfortable is when, yeah, aliens reassure us that we're the bosses, they're our pets, or they're versions of ourselves. And Aliens like the ones we see in Arrival, for example, which is based on the incredible short story by Ted Chang, those aliens are scary, not because they actually do anything that's inherently terrifying, but just because they're so different. They're not reassuring. Yeah, I think we like to have a face. We like to have, you know, creatures who kind of think in a way that makes sense to us that is not too different. Like, I feel like the more... Uh, the more alien an alien becomes, the less comfortable and the less kind of, you know, reassuring it is. And by the way, I just want to say Alicia wrote the novel Supervillains with a Z on the end, which is a trans superhero novel that I highly recommend. So 
I've thought about this a lot, and there's a couple of really pragmatic reasons why D&D is becoming more popular, one of which, as many other people have pointed out, is the fifth edition rules for D&D make it a lot more accessible as a game. Um, It is now much more storytelling oriented and a lot less about kind of rules lawyering. Um, Fourth edition had a lot of just really intense things that you had to keep track of in terms of how you moved and what you could carry and all kinds of other stuff. Um, So I think that's part of it. Also, as, you know, expansions have come along for 5th edition, um, the game has become a lot more diverse. There's a lot more stories that allow you to talk about uh, different groups that, that are in the game. You're allowed to have you know, identities that don't fit stereotypes because it used to be, mm-hmm. you know, dark elves are just evil. And it's true. There's still a lot of evil dark elves, but it's not quite you're not so kind monolithic of, anymore. Yeah. And there's there's a lot of like a lot of the stuff that f- that was very kind of racial stereotyping and gender stereotyping is is slowly leaving the game. And so I think that a lot of women in POC feel more comfortable playing because it's just like less sort of designed for white men in 1970. Um, (laughs) Right. And the other thing, though, is that I think that, especially during the pandemic, a lot of people turned to Dungeons & Dragons online um, to stay connected with their friends. I know that's something that that we did um, in my play group. And you can use things like Roll20. You can use D&D Beyond. Um, there's lots of other apps that make it really fun to play online. So I think the rise of just apps that let you play are really facilitating games. Like I'm playing D&D now with a group where one person is in Iceland, one person is in Japan, <laughs> several of us are in San Francisco. So I think all of those things you know, together are are practically making it more popular. But I also think that we're in a cultural moment where people's identities are really under siege right now. We talked about this a little earlier in the episode about how people are just feeling more precarious in terms of how the government is dealing with their identities, whether it's because they're black and they can't get access to places to vote or because they're queer and they're worried they're going to be um, legislated out of existence. And D&D and similar kinds of role-playing games are safe spaces where we can take on new identities and embody them and inhabit them and have agency within them in a way that's very freeing. My nephew, uh, before he transitioned, he was using the name of his D&D character as his new identity. Like, he's like, well, I'm going to become the name of my character. Then I'm going to take on a new gender. And I feel like for him, and I've talked to him about this, that was for him kind of a transitional place to try on a male identity. And it worked. He liked it. And he was like, okay, now I'm going to do this in real life. And luckily, he lives in a place where he can do that. Um, here in California. So that's my big blob of, of thoughts about that. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to second the thing about 5th edition. I was recently at the wonderful Pandemonium Books, uh, which is a gaming store and bookstore in Cambridge, Mass. Yes, love that store. And we were talking a lot about how younger people have just been flocking to D&D. They have like tables set up there to play games and they're just seeing like a swarm of wonderful young people playing D&D. And they were saying that, you know, it's like when they were like the people at the shop were like, it's like when we were young, like D&D is fun again. It's like accessible again. And I feel like, you know, there's probably a little bit like there, there is harassment in D&D for sure. I know that that happens, but I think that if you're playing with your friends, if it's like in a safe environment, you know, there's maybe less harassment than playing a game on the internet where people can just randomly come and be jerks to you. And I feel like it's just, it's a good game to play with your friends because it is so like you have a party, like you're literally forming a party. You know, the other day I was talking to someone who's playing D&D with his six-year-old kid and like the six-year-old kid is like, they're making campaigns together and like, you know, it's just, it's like, you know, it's a thing that you can get into when you're really young and that kind of, it's just, it's a way to kind of tell a story with your friends. It's not, it doesn't have to be like 
something that's like, well, you have to understand like the all these complicated rules and the 20 different taxonomies of whatever's. So I feel like it's a it's actually one of the things that gives me hope for the future of nerddom is that we're rediscovering this very analog game, even with some digital enhancements. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to answer some slightly less serious questions. Hi, folks. Let me see if I can sum up Midnight Burger in about 25 seconds. Jesus Christ! It'll be fine. So this is how it ends. Eaten by wolves in space. Pardon me, Gloria. Might my husband and I have a word? The radio is talking to me. Really big monster. Zero irony. We're surrounded by cavemen. What the hell is that? Because you're having a cigarette in 415 million BC. Where are we? Space. Can you narrow that down? The bad part? Ava. Yeah, that didn't work at all. At the nexus of all things, there is a diner. Look for Midnight Burger on your favorite podcasting app or just go to weopenat6.com. So this is our lightning round questions, and Shiri asks, what is the pizza of the future? Does it ever homogenize, or are there wars fought over deep dish versus thin crust, pineapple versus none? What's your answer, Charlie Jane? Okay, you know that Star Trek episode where there are like pizzas that fly around and they land on you, and they if they land on you, they turn you into a rage zombie and you start killing everybody, and Spock has to like fly into the sun to get rid of the pizza on him? You notice nobody ever eats pizza on Star Trek, and I think it's because pizzas in the future have evolved to become flying rage creatures that attack you. I don't know. What do you think, Annalie? I think that in the future, we're going to still be fighting over the pie versus cake question, which I think oh, really cuts, sure. to the, this, that, that cuts to the heart of humanity. I feel like pizza, you know, it can become an evil force, but cake versus pie, like that's, that's, that's just eternal. Like, are you like a spongy, soft kind of entity or are you like a crusty fil- filled entity i mean i think that's the future is is like this this ancient debate will never I mean, be there will be there will be galactic wars over cake versus pie i also think that there will be giant machines in space that just turn all organic matter into pizza so there'll be like star systems that are just made out of pizza and people can fly in there and, and scoop some up and then fly away again that's going to be where that's where all of virtual reality is we're going to upload our brains to these vr pizzas that are in space i, I think that's that's oh yeah, for sure. Headed. The sub, the everything will become pizza. Um, so a yeah. listener asks, "What currently inaccessible place would you like to be able to travel to and safely explore?" And I'm just gonna. I mean, my serious answer, unfortunately, is Brazil. I've been really wanting to go to Brazil, and I don't feel like currently don't feel like I can go there. I don't know Mars, or I don't know, possibly one of these like tidally locked planets that we've discovered. Ali, what's your answer? My more serious answer would be Damascus. I've always wanted to go, and right now is not a great time. I would also love to travel back in time to visit Samarkand during the Tang Dynasty yes. in like the seven, 600s, um, 600s in the Western calendar. So that would be really great. That was an awesome city at that time. More fancifully, I like every science fiction nerd, I'd really like to visit Europa and see like what the heck is going on in those <laughs> oceans under the frozen ice. And I want to go to Titan because again, what the heck is going on under all that cloud cover? Like, is there a whole civilization of pizzas? I don't know. I want to know. So really good question go there. Yep. Okay. Next question. A valiant listener asks, is there anything either of you can't write without such as pizza i can write without pizza i prefer not to but i can um things that i need to write i mean you know that i have would find it difficult to write without are coffee like i really need coffee um and you know music i i'm one of those weird people who likes to listen to music as i write and it makes me helps me to get in the zone better how about you annalee also coffee The other thing I really need is the ability to go to cafes and sit with my laptop to write. I find that being able to be in a different location really helps. Like, I can write things just sitting in my study. I just wrote an entire novel during the pandemic where pretty much the entire thing was me sitting 
in a chair at my desk looking out the same window and fuck was that a pain it was oh, really hard and because every other book i've written i've been different cafes all the time i kind of rotate out where i'm sitting um so i'm really looking forward to being able to go back into cafes one day i certainly now in the summer i can go out to some cafes and that that's really good oh my it's, god it's not this the same. is a knife through my heart because i really miss writing in cafes i would also just say like taking a long walk is a thing that really helps me to write it would be hard if i if same. i couldn't do that at all okay next question this is specifically one for you annalee okay jack cat asks is there a story behind the relatively high percentage of Canadian content, a.k.a. CanCon, in Annalise fiction? Annalise? CanCon. Um, yeah, I guilty as charged. I mean, my forthcoming novel, The Terraformers, is set on a planet called Saski, which is anyone who knows anything about Saskatchewan will immediately recognize that it's part of the planet is definitely Saskatchewan, not the whole planet. But um there is a very simple answer, which is that I have a lot of family in Canada. So I visit Canada as much as I can. The family used to be based in Saskatchewan, and now some of them have defected to Quebec. Um, so now I'm relearning French. So, you know, look out for <laughs> French separatist content coming uh, your way. Ah, we. <laughs> yeah, I just ate some really good poutine recently. It was so good. I, I really love poutine. Nice job. Yeah, squeaky cheese is the best. So, in fact, I'm I'm going to visit the family in Quebec uh, in a couple of months, and I'm really excited. Aww. I haven't been back to Canada in a couple of years. So. Eat some weird bagels um, for me, man. Oh my god, yes. We are definitely we're going to spend a couple of days in in Montreal, and there is going to be bagel activity. Believe me, bagel activity. Bagel activity will occur, all right? I'm, I'm using the passive Klingon voice. <laughs> <laughs> Bagels will be provided. Okay, next question. Eric H. asks, I would like to know how you first got published. Yeah, that's such an interesting question because like, okay, for me personally, and I think this probably goes for both of us, there's how we got published as like in journalism and then there's how we got published as creative, quote unquote, writers. And like, those are two different, very, very different questions, at least for me. Like, I mean, when I was in high school, I was posting, I was doing like a weird collaborative storytelling thing on message boards with my friends that only five people were reading. Um, and I was also helping to edit a humor magazine where we would put like weird little stories in there. But my first, like, my first publications that were read by more than a handful of people that any that were read you could possibly by the public were all journalism and I kind of broke into journalism first and spent a lot of time being a journalist as my day job and then writing fiction on the side uh, my first fiction publications were in very small markets I actually tragically had a short story accepted by like a very fancy glossy magazine which immediately went out of business before they could publish my story but for the most part I was just kind of scratching at the door publishing in like little tiny kind of zines and anthologies that were like really small press anthologies and just like little tiny venues um my first kind of major fiction publication was probably in a literary magazine called Ziziva but you know, it took it took years for me to get anywhere as a fiction writer. How about you, Annalie? Yeah, it's complicated for me too because, like you, I've had a very I've had a varied career when it comes to publishing. So, my earliest writing that got published was actually poetry. I was a poet when I was in high school and undergrad, and pretty devoted to my craft, and took a lot of writing classes and poetry. And so my first publication that other people saw was actually a poem in the college literary magazine where I was studying. Um, this was when I was at Saddleback Community College in uh, in Irvine. I was actually, it was Irvine Valley College, which was part of the Saddleback Community College system. So that was really nice and very exciting. And then I started self-publishing when I was in graduate school a zine called Bad Subjects with a group of friends. And that was angry, academic-flavored cultural criticism from a leftist perspective. Um, many of us were Marxists. Many of us are still Marxists and continue to write angry screeds. And 
that was um, not writing that I got paid for, but it got seen by a lot of people because it was an online zine and actually one of the very first online zines. So I can remember in the 90s when we were publishing it, an article coming out in the San Francisco Chronicle saying, did you know there's magazines on the internet? Here's one. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, yes, it's all about a Marxist analysis of Star Trek. Did you (laughs) know? (laughs) Did you know there's magazines on the internet? So, um, but my first professional sales um, were to indie newspapers. Um, I had a column that ran in the Silicon Valley Metro and the San Francisco Bay Guardian, which was called Texploitation. And that was probably my first really big commercial enterprise uh, when it came to to journalism. And of course, it was a column. So it was it was opinion, correct opinions. And my first fiction publication came a long time later. I mean, I really was a journalist and that was what I wanted to do. It was not a day job for me. It was a job of my heart and soul and and mind. And I got really interested in writing fiction basically in like 2014. So which for me was, you know, pretty was like relatively later in my writing career and my professional writing career because lived for a long time. But I remember you were working on Autonomous back in 2009, though. I started writing Autonomous in 2009, um, but I didn't actually revise it until much, much later. That was not, that was a thing I was doing, like, to teach myself how to write, basically. And the first version of Autonomous was nothing like the version that came out um, in you know, 2017. So like in 2015, I started really seriously revising it. But before that, um, I was trying to hone my craft by publishing short stories. And my first science fiction short story came out in a an online magazine called Flurb, uh, which was edited by Rudy Rucker, who very kindly took my weird story called the gravity fetishist about someone who had a sexual fetish for gravity. I love that story. And their adventures. Um, You can probably still find it online if you search for the gravity fetishist. Um, I, you know, definitely I feel like I've leveled up in my storytelling, but I still stand by gravity fetish as a good invention. So it was really cool. Yeah. But this is just to say, it took me a really, really long time as well um, with all of my writing. I started out by publishing stuff for free and spent a long time building up my skills before anyone could be tricked into giving me money. <laughs> so our final question, Andreas asks, what's your process for making an episode? What work goes into research, recording, and post-production? And, you know, first of all, thanks for thinking about all the work that goes into this show. We really appreciate that. So, Annalie, why don't you start? So, actually, a lot goes into it when we're on the ball and not, um, you know, (laughs) procrastinating too much. We talk about episode topics usually months in advance, but... uh, always weeks in advance. So we we know what our topics are going to be. And then we spend some time just sort of spitballing with each other about like, where do we want this episode to go? Um, what kind of conclusions do we want to reach? You know, what kind of stories do we want to talk about? And we tend to divide and conquer. So usually I'll take point on one episode and then Charlie Jane will take point on the next one. And so that's why you'll hear us trading off reading the, the intro and, and kind of asking each other questions. And then once we've decided on that stuff, that's when we start researching. And I just want to add that like when we're on the ball, when we're not traveling all over the country, which has been unfortunately the case recently, uh, we, t- we try to have a weekly meeting where we kind of just strategize about the podcast. And actually, we haven't been doing that recently. I'm hoping we can get back to it. But, you know, just the more we kind of chew over the episodes, the more kind of when we get to the research phase, we know what we're looking for, which is kind of half the battle, I want to say. Yeah. And the work that happens when we're recording and after we're recording is entirely due to our amazing producer, Veronica. So Veronica, if you want to like come on the mic and talk about your process, that'd be awesome. Oh, God. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the pod, Veronica. (laughs) Yeah, special guest. 
<laughs> apologies for the Zoom quality recording because I don't have a microphone set up, um, which is very against my morals as an engineer, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we sit on Zoom and record together. And then I take the files and I edit them together and mix them so that they sound good. And I add in clips that are suggested from Annalie and Charlie Jane. And yeah, do any sort of editing to make everybody sound really good. Yeah, the reason why you don't hear me saying um every other word is basically because of Veronica. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm really into saying um. But I do want to go back to the thing about research because I think that's important is like kind of just like we we've been gravitating over the years to make this towards making this podcast one that was a, that's a little bit more researched and reported versus like what we used to do and a lot of that is just kind of trying to like find the through line of something and trying to find like last the previous episode about work you know Annalie did a ton of research about like the history of factories and labor in Lowell Massachusetts and everything and how that ties in with science fiction and just trying to make these kinds of connections like I, I'm really loving having episodes where we can kind of connect the dots in different ways. Like I did that episode about cars where I sort of thought about like how were cars developing and how did science fiction talk about them? And it's just, it actually can be really fun to kind of go down the rabbit hole about that, I feel like. Yeah, I find research to be the most fun part of any project that I'm working on, honestly, because that's when you're you haven't committed to putting anything on paper yet. And so you can just kind of go wild and you can just allow yourself to watch like weird crap on YouTube and like read strange documents from the 18th century. And um, and it's like part of your job. So you get to just do it instead of like using it as a procrastination tool, which is also something that I do where it's just like, oh, I don't want to write. Why don't I research more? So I... Because I am a science journalist, um, first and foremost, I definitely like being able to bring in actual facts, like historical facts, scientific facts, and kind of use that to contextualize the stories that we're talking about, because I don't believe that fiction exists in a vacuum. I think fiction is always in dialogue with what's actually happening to people in their real lives. So to me, that's one of the really important parts of the research is figuring out how to contextualize the stories we're talking about, um, whether contextualizing them in terms of what kinds of technological innovations were happening at the time or social changes or just, um, you know, getting to write about how people in ancient Mesopotamia were paid in beer. Beer. Okay, so that's a good place to stop. If you are one of our patrons, you can hear us answer another listener question on Patreon. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this podcast. You can find us wherever podcasts are found. If you find us on Apple Podcasts or someplace else where they have a way to relieve reviews, please leave us a review. It helps a lot. We are on Twitter at OOACpod. And most of all, we're on Patreon at patreon.com slash ouropinionsarecorrect. Thank you so much to our heroic producer, Veronica Simonetti. Thanks to Chris Palmer for the amazing music. And, you know, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. And if you are a patron, we'll be seeing you on Discord. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye.